When you choose Chadwick's, you get the best branch network and the best advice. Now get the best value in our spring sale. DeWalt 18 volt combi drill. Now 279 euro 99. Save an incredible 200 euro. Karcher K4 compact pressure washer. Now 209 euro 99. Save 90 euro. Myra Elite dual electric shower. Now 349 euro. Save 35 euro. Check out chadwicks.ie or visit a branch near you. Chadwicks. Let's get it done. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Thomas Greiter is a co-author of a book called Lights Out, Pride, Delusion and the Fall of General Electric. He joins me now to discuss a book that he's co-authored with his colleague Ted Mann. It's the definitive history of General Electric's epic decline. And if you're looking for a book for a businessy type in your family this Christmas, this could be the one for you. It's very accessible, even though it's about one of the largest, most complex companies in the world. It's certainly a page turner and very readable. Thomas, you're very welcome to News Talk today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mandy. Now, Thomas, General Electric is as synonymous with America as Coca-Cola. It's literally responsible for turning the lights on. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the original concept of the company and how it became so prominent and successful from the outset? Sure. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, the late 19th century uh, when electrification is, is happening and, um, you know, uh, basically... Uh, the roots of that come from the inventor Thomas Edison in, in the U.S. and um, uh, uh, there was it was a very fractured industry. There was a lot of different companies competing, um, and basically uh, the, the financier J.P. Morgan um, rolled up a bunch of these companies uh, and formed General Electric. Uh, partly because, as you can imagine, to roll out electricity and produce this equipment, you need a lot of capital. You need a, a large company that can do it. Um, he recognized that, saw the opportunity, and put this company together. Um, it comes together in 1892, and uh, uh, the rest is sort of history. Uh, as time goes by, they uh, they get into healthcare. They get into making uh, parts for planes. That eventually be- turns into them making jet engines and becoming uh, the dominant player in that in that industry. Um, they're making. They're still making power equipment. They move into media. They move into trains. They move into almost anything you can think of as the decades go by. Um, they're outfitting houses with all the things that you need to plug into your electricity. All those little appliances in your kitchen, and and of course they're helping people and companies finance all of it. Yeah, the diversification program was quite gargantuan in its nature. And the evolution the evolution of the company uh, was an, an important part of its culture, wasn't it? Particularly under one of their CEOs, Jack Welch, who was one of their more successful CEOs. Could you just talk us a bit about talk to us a bit about him? Sure. Um, Jack came in. Uh, he rose he rose through the ranks. He came from a sort of blue collar background. Um, he spent a lot of time in their plastics business and, and really worked his way up, sort of known for his, his gruff style, very direct, wanting results, um, didn't spend a lot of time uh, dancing around problems, wanted things fixed or replaced. And that could sometimes include people. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was about diversification. He, he, he sort of cleaned out some of the older dust and cobwebs and such uh, when he came in, got rid of some of the more burdensome planning that the company did, laid off a lot of people, 
um, earned this name Neutron Jack because the buildings would stay, the people would be gone. Um, and he, as uh, in his 20 years at the top, uh, really in the second half of that, he he really started to double down on financial services. Um, he, he bought NBC, getting uh, GE back into media. Um, you know, and this was... Um, you know, this, this, these deals, these hundreds of, of acquisitions he was making um, really gave him a lot of prominence and the stock really took off. He became sort of a, a darling in, in the corporate world uh, and every, it really became a household name, um, which is sort of amazing for the CEO of General Electric. Um, and really in his time, he made it the most valuable company in America. Um, and was uh, it was uh, you know he 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 then handed you know handed it off to an almost an almost uh, an impossible uh, almost impossible shoes to fill. Yeah, um, and we might come to his successor in a few moments. But you mentioned a second ago that they moved and diversified into different spaces, like the media. It was one I wanted to pick up on because it was moving very far away from the original concept of making things, producing things into uh, entertainment space. And one of the things that struck me when I was reading the book is this notion that you really should kind of stick to what you know, because their expansion into areas that, you know, moved far away from the core of their business was was kind of where, for me, things started to go awry. Is that right? I think that's I think that's right. Um, it is, as you say, it's sort of amazing to think about an industrial company buying a media company. You have to you also have to remember part of what GE's whole philosophy of itself was. There's this mythology around it that they know how to run companies, um, and, it, and it doesn't matter if it makes uh, you know car engines, jet engines, if it makes TV shows. If it makes toaster ovens, they, they yeah that that was one thing that their management excellence could apply to anything that they took over just by dint of them being involved. It was like they were guaranteeing some kind of success. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They um, if GE owned it, the idea was that the asset was worth more because mm. GE owned it. Um, and when you take, you can then take that to any industry, in, including media. Um, which we even see today companies moving into media and moving right back out because it's a very difficult space to be in. Um, but you're, you're right. I think they, they thought they could do this and it wasn't, uh, it didn't always play out this idea that you could sort of run anything and that you had sort of solved the management problem. Yeah, GE Capital, that was an interesting uh, manoeuvre for them. It seemed quite logical that they should branch into financing some of the products they sold, but it grew to such an exponential state. Can you talk us through its um, evolution and where it ended up? Sure. Um, It is very logical, uh, right? I mean, to finance your own products or to help people buy them uh, makes a lot of sense. It's very common. A lot of companies um, and GE will continue to do it for its products that it makes. Um, but to your point, they got in more into financial services for others. Um, and, and the core of it was they were using its thriving industrial business to borrow money at a low rate that they could then lend to others at a higher higher rate. Um, and Jack well under Jack Welch, he was so uh, surprised 
uh, at how easy it was in those early days that you could you could make money by essentially moving money around mm-hmm. um, and in some in some ways over the years it, it became a drug um, it became something that you know it was so easy to make this money it was so easy to help the earnings it helped uh, it helped the, the rest of the company in that sense and um, it, it they got deeper and deeper into it until it was half the company which was an enormous company if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Thomas Greta from the Wall Street Journal. And that's that's one extraordinary feat that, from the company's perspective. But the other side of it is, of course, it was effectively becoming a bank. Um, and how was that regulated, Thomas? <laughs> well, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because they weren't a bank. Uh, they, they were an industrial company. Mm. But you're right, they were an industrial company with a gigantic bank bolted onto them. Um, and this, you know, wasn't, wasn't really a problem. In fact, it was a, it was an advantage that they saw. They saw, they thought mm. they had outsmarted wall street, right? Like we can do the things that you do, but we can do it better and more profitable because we're not regulated. Um, and they did fill, they did fulfill a role here in the middle of the market. They did lend to places where regular banks weren't as aggressive in lending. So there, there was a lot of business for them. But on the corporate governance side of things, um, the story about the dividends payment and when they realized that they weren't liquid to pay those dividends was quite extraordinary. Can you talk us to a little bit about how that came about and how the exposure was eventually revealed? Yeah, well, you have, you know, in, in the financial crisis, you really took a hit for this mm. financial services business. And um, ultimately, in the years following, decided it needed to get out of financial services no investors could look at GE the same. It always was a black box that was really scary because all of a sudden GE Capital was there and it was a risk. Um, so w- when they exit, they sell most of GE Capital. Um, they bring in billions and billions and billions of cash. In order to offset the loss of that, they repurchase a lot of stock, mm. which was not maybe the wisest decision for them uh, to replace this sort of core uh, cash producing engine um, with with stock. Um, And they also make other acquisitions, including a large uh, deal in their in their power business that was was sour. Um, So essentially, they 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 shut down a huge engine for them as far as profit. They make some bad deals. And yes, they are they are paying out a large dividend. um, And it wasn't sustainable and they were they were stretching to make it but it got to a point where uh they really couldn't keep it together any longer so at what point do you think thomas was the crux for them where do you think they started to become unstuck um you mean when did they start to realize that their you know their their diversification program had become so big that as a conglomerate they were no longer viable and you know earlier um sorry last month uh, they announced that they would um split into three different companies when do you think that that process of moving from being GE to look we got to do something here we got to restructure when do you think that finally hit home i i do think it 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 was when uh Jeff Immel mm-hmm. uh, who was Jack Welch's successor i think when he retired and John Flannery came in, and he John was a very different person than Jeff, much more finance oriented, and I think he was able to look at the state of GE mm. and see what was happening. Um, 
I think Jeff was aware that there were problems, and I think he knew it was time for him to go, and he thought the person after him would be able to sort of restructure or fix. I don't think, at least Jeff would say, he didn't think the problems were as bad as they turned out to be or as some have made them out to be. Um, but that was really the beginning. And you're right, you know, John Flannery was for 14 months, and he was fired. Uh, Larry Culp came in and has really focused on on turning around the company at its uh, real uh, core finance, making sure it's producing cash, keeping costs down. But ultimately, breaking up the company is where we are. And, you know, I don't think that would have been possible until now because of the financial condition it was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, and it's still not going to happen. It's still, you know, we're still looking at a more than a two-year process here until this is done. Yeah, um, but it's 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 turning around a huge tanker. But like you know, I don't want to be so negative for our listeners here that um, it's still a very big company. It's still pl- employing one hundred and seventy-five thousand people. It's still uh, valued at one hundred and twenty billion, but it's nowhere near where it was at its heights in two thousand at six hundred billion dollars. Uh, so, can you just talk to us about how it is structuring itself now in those three separate parts, and and what you think is um, is the trajectory for those going forward? Because it, it could make a success of this new configuration. Oh, absolutely. It's very easy to look back at the history of GE and say, oh, what a disaster. Um, but by no means can you extrapolate that into the future. Their business, their core three businesses of healthcare, uh, uh, power, which means, you know, power generation and energy and, yeah. You know, and then uh, aviation, they, they're, they're leaders in these industries and these companies aren't going to be small. There's still going to be huge companies that, um, you know, that are pretty, their, their healthcare company produces, you know, CT scans, uh, scanners, and all sorts of equipment. If, if you're in a hospital, uh, you're, you're almost definitely going to come upon general something from a General Electric. Um, power equipment, they produce, I think, two-thirds of the world power is coming from GE equipment. I mean, um, it's an, an enormous business. And it, it's a business under change, because when we talk about climate, um, there's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. And then, and the same with aviation. Aviation is an enormously profitable business, both in, in making the equipment, well, less than making the equipment, but the service. And uh, people up until the pandemic, people were flying more and more and more. And I think people do expect that to resume at some point. Um, so that's certainly the, the thrust behind breaking these up is, is letting them have more focus, letting the people who are running them be experts in those industries, not have to be experts in multiple industries. Um, they can really focus the investment they can control their own destiny more. And for investors, they can buy stock in a healthcare company or they can buy stock in an aviation company. They don't have to buy stock in a company that's in different industries and you may not know what else they're in. Yeah, it's more it's more transparent in the sense that you know exactly what you're getting involved in. You're buying um, an aviation into an aviation company, not an aviation company who does a bit of media and uh, entertainment. That, that's right. Um, but I think, you know, when people talk about the breakup or the end of GE, that doesn't mean General Electric is going away. Mm-hmm. Um, it is sort of, the, it's, it's the next, uh, the, maybe the next phase. Uh, in some ways, they were a dinosaur that, that managed to survive a bit longer than others. Yeah, and that era of the conglomerate uh, may be over in America. 
I, I think so. Of course, some people will say, hey, let's look at Google and Amazon and they have a point. Um, but it's more global uh, in its outreach. It's not a product in just based based in America. Do you think, Thomas, I know you've been reporting on this for quite some time. Um, do you think that ultimately um, General Electric was just one of those products that were just too big to fail and that ultimately it had to be supported despite all of its misdemeanors and despite some bad decision making? I, I, yeah, I think to some degree, I think that that is true. I think some of the industries they're in are, they are sort of too big to fail. Um, I mean, their aviation business alone, they do a lot of military business. Yeah. And again, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of the world's planes fly on their engines. I read an extraordinary figure, like every second minute, a uh, uh, GE aviation engine is is taking off somewhere around the the globe. So they're they're omnipresent everywhere. It's it's huge. It is. It is. Um, they are. You know. Um, it's actually they they work with uh, CF. It's a, com- a French company called Safran, um, and they have a, a, a very dominant position. They're they're you know, the high dependability, they've come out with uh, their latest engine in the last few years. Pratt and Whitney is really their main competitor. Mm. It's a very concentrated industry because, you know, it, it, it gets, it's like $10 billion, I think, over, you know, two or three decades to develop a new engine from a blank sheet. I mean, it's an incredibly capital intensive industry. Um, and it's not something that you can just jump into. Um so I think it's sort of not, it's not something that's going to go away for them anytime soon. Well, Bill Gates said, if you're in any kind of leadership role, whether it's a company, a nonprofit or something else, there's a lot you can learn from this book. Thomas, you and your colleague at the Wall Street Journal, Ted Mann, who, of course, co-authored this book, must be very proud of the work. Uh, as I say, it's a great stocking filler. That's Thomas Greta from the Wall Street Journal. Thomas, thank you for joining us today. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. There's not a moment to lose when you want car insurance that overtakes the competition. So choose the great value cover that only comes with Super Value Car Insurance, giving you a 10% online discount and shopping vouchers with your policy. That's a great deal for the cover you need anyway. All it takes is one big click or call. Just visit supervalue.ie slash insurance or call 0818 and our Super Value team will save the day from start to finish. Terms and conditions apply. Vouchers include two 10 euro or 40 euro spend. This car insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. Super Value Financial Services DAC trading as Super Value Insurance is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.